A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over. This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't draw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here? You showing you man. <laughs> Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast after a weekend that saw Darren Randolph announce himself on the Premier League stage. Ken, Murph, how are you? Hello there all. I mean it wasn't his debut or anything but uh, his name was certainly up in lights. It can't be a bad sign for a goalkeeper that he gets name checked by the opposition when they're looking for excuses. Desperately scrambling for excuses as to why they didn't win the game. Well, Actually, I shouldn't say name checked, more position checked. Mm. So Andrew Herrera, I don't know if you saw him afterwards. It's hilarious. Oh, the goalkeeper was the best player for the de- de- for the other team once again. It was the same against Burnley, against Stoke, against Arsenal. I can't remember a game this season where an opponent has created more chances than us. I don't know what we have to do to win a game. Oh. I don't know what I can say to our fans. It's frustrating for us. Well, one thing you can do, Ander, is make it impossible for the goalkeeper to save it by being a little more clinical with your finishing. I mean, not you in particular, but a couple of your attacking teammates. That's one option. You did get one goal past them after all. Uh, but yeah, it's hilarious that players deem it unfair that the opposition goalkeeper is making all these great saves. Bloody men coming in here doing their job. Yeah, I'll tell you what I thought when I saw Ander Herrera doing that post-match interview. If I was Rui Faria, I'd be feeling seriously threatened right now. Oh, you think he's got a bit of the I potential just, number two for Josie Marino? I absolutely, I think he's got number two written all over him. In, in the sort of sense of me, player the siege mentality? yeah. He's just, just in terms of, as a propagandist, you know, to, to stand there and to look as though he believed every word that he was saying, you know, as though the goalkeeper has come here every, every time, every week the goalkeeper comes here and it's like the second coming of Christ between the sticks, you know, the ball just deflecting off his aura. That's what it's like here for us at Manchester <laughs> United, you know, and this is a team that's in the middle of its worst run of home results or its longest run, run without a win at home since 1990. Right, it's pretty bad. I mean, was Ander Herrera even born in 1990? Just about, and 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 he's standing there, and honestly, I believed him. Yeah, <laughs> and you know he, and, and he's just he's got that little edge about him. Rui Faria came on, and I thought he looked like yesterday's news. 
Yeah, he wasn't as spiky this time, yeah. Rui Fire. Last time he was on, he was really defending his man, and he was. St- what game was that where he was sticking it to the opposition and he was essentially well, jo- mini uh, Jose? Fantastic work by the referee. Whereas this time he, he was asked, why was Jose sent off? And he said, well, because uh, there was the incident with Pogba. I think he might have seen the replay by this stage and realized Pogba died. There was the incident with Pogba, and then yeah, everybody saw what happened. <laughs> you know, Jose kicked him. Well, I mean, the beaten down by life Jose Mourinho is a. Uh... I mean, that's a staple now as well. Yeah. So maybe Rui Faria is actually just channeling that Jose as opposed to the, the yeah. you know, getting sent from the touchline Jose. Well, he, you know, he, he didn't really, he wasn't up for the fight. But Andrew Herrera, I've got to say, I've been impressed by him all all season. Can I tell you about a text message I received from the most rabid Manchester United fan in my life yeah, at halftime? Right, yeah. Controversial statement, this, but... I think this is the best football Manchester United have played <laughs> in five years. Five years, not three years. Deliberately years. getting in that last One title, the, last couple of title yeah, winning seasons. Last two seasons under Fergie. Mm. Uh, say what you like, but it's not dull. That's, that's what the text message said. You know what they remind me of? £280 million for not dull football, or whatever it is that they've spent the last year. Two yeah. points less than David Moyes at the same stage of the season, and since then they've spent... Six hundred and fifteen million, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I'm underestimating is... it wildly. Mm. Sorry, Ken, I cut across here. No, they. they uh, it's no, it's all true. They're seven points behind where Louis Van Gaal was this time last season. Um, it's not good, but they remind me of King Kenny's Liverpool. I mean, the comeback of King Kenny. Uh, they too were were um, an expensively assembled side revolving around a big man up top, uh, who, who were able to dominate games and apparently play well and yet fail ever to win, they would hammer the woodwork. This was like their big thing. We're so unlucky, we always hit the woodwork. And this, they, they had this syndrome of the goalkeeper, the genius goalkeeper. Um, every time we play, it's like the goalkeeper just has the game of his career. <laughs> You know, now I guess that actually was one of the best games of Darren Rand- Randall. Oh no, uh, yeah, he was extremely good, and he couldn't have done anything about the goal. As certainly everybody was, I was as impressed as Andrew Herrera was. Mm. I just felt, it, it a, you know, it's not it's it's a legitimate tactic for the opposition to use their goalkeeper to stop shots. Mm, absolutely, which Herrera seemed to have an issue with. And, and also, it's one of those things where um, give, him, give him express instructions to go out there, really, you know, save those shots. And get your hands you on can. a few balls. Yeah. <laughs> a few away. Um, the, I, I remember when David De Gea had a particularly good performance last season, was um, two seasons ago, um, when Manchester United beat Liverpool 3 0. And somebody tweeted, I can't remember who it was, but somebody tweeted, hmm, I think the secret to beating David De Gea might be shooting just to either side of him. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, which is which is maybe underrating what Randolph did. I mean, he had a one-on-one save from um, Rashford, and then uh, another pretty much one-on-one against Lingard. And there was an excellent save in the second half, which went slightly more unnoticed because it led to the disallowed goal for offside. I think Mkhitaryan took the initial mm, shot. Yeah, great save. Brilliant save. So the offside would have been irrelevant if he hadn't managed to nudge it onto the post. We'll yeah. talk about Tottenham's woes after their defeat by Chelsea today. We'll also check in with Sid Lowe at the head of the Classico next week. All that after Ken's Report on Sport. Um, so there was that issue of, of Mourinho being sent off, and um, one of the themes in the in the, okay, so I mean, should he have been sent off? No, you don't think so. Steve Staunton again, another man I think we might be getting to in this report on sport, did the exact same thing and was sent off. Oh, was he? Of course. Oh, wasn't he against Germany? Oh yeah, maybe he was. Now do you mention it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure. Bang, boom! <laughs> Get your bags packed, there, mate. 
There goes my argument. I'm just, I'm just Did checking Stan out. Steve, foot kind of Steve Stanton sent off Germany. Yeah, he, he was he get sent his off. foot kind of caught in there. Why are you getting sent off for kicking water bottles? What, was it what? The water bottle holder Stan kicked. Oh, yeah. that's. Uh, in, my mi- in my mind, he got his kind of pointy brown shoe stuck in the, no, the holder. No, no, no. no, 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 no clean contact. He's a great left boot. He's not going to Yeah, It's certainly better than Mourinho. You know, I mean, as as a as a a left foot. I mean, I assume Marino's right footed. The odds are, but uh, you know, I I wouldn't say his his dominant foot, whichever it is, is as good as Steve Stone's left foot. I would be I would be surprised and impressed. But Stan didn't get as good a contact on the water bottle. Um, he he tried to loft it, I suppose, and it, I think the cap wasn't on it, so it didn't have much internal pressure. So I. In my memory, there was this, there was a cascade, a gushing cascade of water that squirted out of the bottle yeah. as it flew through the air. Yeah, I think you're that right, happened. Ken. You're right. Uh, whereas with Mourinho, it was a plastic. It was actually a plastic water bottle that uh, was sealed, and he punted it like a like a rugby ball almost. It was like an NFL his kicker favorite. from the his an favorite. NFL kicker from the 1960s. It was straight a straight just boost, just a, a bog toe on. I think it, you'd call it. it, it well, I'd call it a toe bog. A toe bog. I would, I would as well. I would, I would call it a toe. I would bog toe. Well, there you anymore. go, lads. That's cultural differences between me and you, uh, well, urbanites. It's incorrect. Well, it's not incorrect, Owen. It's not incorrect. But it's, it's, as, as, you, as you said, Owen, uh, precedent <laughs> has, you know, has hanged Jose Mourinho here. He, uh, he got sent off because he, what he did, you, just, you don't do. You don't kick stuff around like a hooligan. You know, it's just... Managers act like maniacs every week. I don't see the difference between kicking something and just the, the standard ranting and raving. Well, that's honest. that's a point that's been made by, among other people, Duncan Castles on Twitter. Duncan Castles, um, journalist who has, in recent weeks, found himself, you know, a little bit, a little bit irritated by some of the excessive... Criticism of Jose Mourinho that you find out there. Jose Mourinho, of course, is a much put-upon man. When has he ever been given a fair crack of the whip? I hear you ask. And he points out Jurgen Klopp, rancid raves. People call it passion. Antonio Conte runs around like a lunatic. People say, oh, isn't it great? Jose Mourinho, sense of the stance. And I'm like, yeah, but did they kick a bottle? If not... It's not really comparable. I mean, kicking, it's like kicking a bottle is one of those things. It's like you get a yellow card for taking off your shirt. You know, unless your shirt's on fire or something. You can turn around and say, oh, you know, I've supported through a flare. My shirt is on fire. <laughs> you, you, he might let you away with that. But kicking a bottle, it's just... Is kicking the, a bottle worse than roaring abuse into the face of the fourth official, which you see managers doing? You can get sent off for that as well. You, you can do, but oftentimes you see, you see these heated debates, we'll call them, between fourth official and managers, and the manager gets away with it. I, I, I don't know, the bottle. I mean, it's a victimless crime. Um, it is, I suppose. It's, it's all. It's one of those, it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. Maybe it's a safety regulation. For, actually, I should mention that the, the, just um, someone called Michael Cronin uh, in Perth, Western Australia, uh, sent me a postcard and some, and some stickers uh, reading the, some patient on insulin stickers. I'm not really sure why, but I can see in the postage this cost him twenty Australian dollars and forty six cents. So I'd say thank you very much for the stickers. <laughs> he also sent me a copy of the reason that he was in the post office, which is a carbon copy of his uh, traffic ticket uh, for the traffic violation he committed. You were the driver slash passenger of a push bike type vehicle and committed the following offence: fail to wear a bicycle helmet. 
Apparently that's a criminal or, or it's, wow. a, it's an offense in Australia. It's an overhead helmet. $50 fine. So we have to pay the fine. Why is, he, so why is he sending you all this? I'm not really sure. What? <laughs> he says, currently my local post office paying a cycling ticket. Feel it fits with the scumbag team. Uh, refers to your recent discussions about diabetes. I came upon a packet of the enclosed stickers uh, in work. He works as a doctor in a, in a hospital emergency department. He uh, has been pilfering from work in addition to breaking the rules of the road. <laughs> and took them home. Uh, I feel you should have them. So thanks very much for that, Michael. But, you know, that's that idea of the safety. Um, uh, you have to wear a bicycle ticket in Australia. Or a bicycle helmet, not a ticket. Maybe here we might view that as a bit nanny statish, But, you know, maybe Australians are safer on their bicycles as a result. And maybe it's the same logic when it comes to managers kicking stuff around. I mean, how heavy is a water bowl? If it was full of a litre of water, then it's going to be at least one kilo, right? Mm-hmm. One kilo weight spinning around through the air after being violently towed yeah, by Jose Mourinho. It's not, yeah, it's not especially safe. It's not safe when you kick it like Neil Lennon does in this image here. That might be what you were thinking of, Murph, is it? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Have a look yeah, there. Yeah. Neil Lennon's kicked the, the entire. He's gone and kicked the entire rack. Rack. Yeah. And his water spinning everywhere. His foot looks like I don't know where it's going to end up. Did he get sent off for that? No, no news on that at present. I'm, I sure, bet- I'm sure some of our listeners will remember the incident. If he got sent off for that, that I really hope he did. That's more of the. Uh, it's more of the priesthood. But, you know, Duncan Castles had written a piece um, before this game in which he proclaimed that Jose Mourinho was finished. I thought, hello. I can't believe he's gone there. Surely Jose Mourinho's not finished. But when I clicked on the story, it turned out that he didn't really mean what he said. Jose Mourinho was finished. Mourinho was yesterday's man. Mourinho looks sour and glum. Mourinho looks weary and despondent. Mourinho was angry and out of control. Mourinho has lost his mojo. Mourinho is nothing but a checkbook manager who no longer knows how to buy properly. I thought, whew, what a searing indictment this is of Jose Mourinho. Mourinho has been superseded by a new generation of genius coaches. I thought, genius coaches? That sounds a little bit sarcastic. You know the names, there's plenty of them. Antonio Conte, Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, Maurizio Pochettino. 12 rounds into a 38-game Premier League season. Oh, I thought, hello. Is he suggesting it's too soon to say? Each has already had at least one turn being lauded as the champion manager-elect. Conte was supposedly on the verge of breaking the land speed record for Roman Abramovich second, but then got tough in his players and switched to a five-man defence to win six league matches in a row. He's now top of the table in current flavour of the week in the Why Mourinho's Past It camp. So I'm kind of thinking, <laughs> ah, okay, I get what's going on here. Yeah. These other guys aren't all so good. And Jose Mourinho ain't all that bad. <laughs> and the rest of the article, surely enough, does prove that. And among the things that the points that are made is that Jose Mourinho has won the Premier League title more times than any of these guys. None of them has won the Premier League title. What's Antonio Conte been doing? Like he's still, he's still, he's almost—he's probably almost fifty yet, and he still hasn't won the Premier League. No, he hasn't won What's any Premier League. Guardiola, no Premier League titles. <laughs> um, uh, Klopp again, no Premier League titles. By the end of this season, at least three of them still won't have one. So, in other words, it's going to take at least three years for Klopp, Conte. Pochettino and Guardiola to catch up with Jose Mourinho's total of Premier League titles. At least three years and maybe more. And I thought, well, you know, this doesn't actually prove that Jose Mourinho is not 
all the things that he describes him as being in the first paragraph. I mean, how long will it take Klopp, Conte, Guardiola and Pochettino to catch up with Alex Ferguson's total of Premier League titles? Or Bob Paisley, Bob Paisley never won the Premier League. But you know what I mean. As historic totals have no real um, input into who's the best now. Who's the best now? Look at the table. Manchester United have the most expensive team. They're 11 points behind Jose Mourinho's team last season, which has 17 points more than Jose Mourinho's team had this time last season. You know, after 13 games, yeah. Chelsea last season had 14 points. Now they've got 31. After 140 years of organised football in England, they have actually stumbled upon a pretty good system of deciding, you know, who has the best team in the Premier in the, in the top <laughs> division, which is a league table where... And we can have a look at that league table now, and it gives us a pretty good idea of what Duncan is trying to get at there, I think. Yeah, so so on top is Jose Mourinho's old team that, that crashed out last season, and he was sacked halfway through the season. Then there's Liverpool, the historic rival of Manchester United, 10 points clear. And then there's Pep Guardiola, who is the manager of the City rival. I honestly don't think you could pick three worse teams for Manchester United to be trading by 10 or more points after 13 matches a season. You really couldn't. It's a nightmare for Mourinho. This is a nightmare. Wenger is eight points ahead. Even Tottenham, who can't win a game, are four points ahead of Manchester United at the moment. I don't know wonder he's, he's, he doesn't have to do the press conference when he gets sent off. Was he thinking about that? I don't know. He doesn't have to do it when he gets sent off. Uh, and so he didn't do it. He left it to Rui Fire. We, we were talking about that. But you can imagine how he didn't. He wouldn't want to do one at this stage, especially after losing two more points in all those teams that are currently racing away the title. It's, it's a nightmare. I, I can't. I can't wait to see how this is going to pan out because, we, as we've said before, the, the position of, of chasing a long way back and yet keeping things on a, a relatively even keel. Yeah, keeping the spirits up and so on. Well, it's time for it's time for Jose Mourinho to show us a new trick. Because this is not something he's ever showed us before. Steve Staunton in the news, Ken. Yeah, poor Steve Staunton has been declared bankrupt in the UK. Uh, it seems to be another film scheme involvement, or at least that's, that was the reports that the uh, the Sun on Sunday had yesterday. <clears throat> um, the Irish Independent note that when he was first appointed as Ireland manager, it was reported Mr. Staunton had extensive property interests in three countries worth millions. As well as property in and around his native Laos, he also owned extensive property in the English Midlands and on the Spanish mainland. Uh, in November last year, he opened the Steve Staunton Football Academy based at Lichfield City FC near his home in Shenston in the British Midlands. So that's an unfortunate story for Steve Staunton. These film schemes. Film schemes. And how many of these footballers are invested in these schemes that were at the time sold to them as being these tax efficient vehicles for investment? But very tax efficient. Yeah, uh, turns out that well, at some point the rules seem to change and the rug was pulled from under them to a certain extent. Mm. And now they all owe a hell of a lot of money. Or they, they all owe a hell of a lot of money. A lot of the people who invested in these schemes have found themselves in trouble. Mm. And just talking even off the record to you know a couple of people who have suffered that footballers over in the UK, I think the problem's massive. And it, there yeah. was the big Sunday Times piece last year, which actually indicated gave a fair indication of. Uh, the the level of what's going on, but uh, it seems like countless footballers got involved in those. Yeah, the, it was it spread like an epidemic through their community. This is a great way to reduce to streamline that tax bill, um, and oftentimes such ideas turn out not to be um, as good as advertised. Um, 
I mean, even the even the the idea the the extensive property interests. I mean, extensive property interests in Ireland, England, and Spain in two thousand and six probably looked good in two thousand and six. But I wonder how good it looked by two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's there's a lot of uh, yeah, there's a lot of things there. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate for Steve Stone, and hopefully he manages to uh, bounce back, get things back together. Yeah, um, we did. We're going to talk to John Bruin about the uh, Chelsea Tottenham game. Um, Another great win for Chelsea, who are really going quite well. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother talking about David Luiz Owen and and how good he is. Cause I think everybody knows that by now. You know, there's no need for me to labour the point. Being the bigger man really doesn't suit you, Ken. Can I just say that? Well, I said I'm going to be the bigger man. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, it suit answering you. his critics. And then you left a pause for either myself or Murph to come in and take up the slack and talk about how great David Luiz is. Oh, I just think he's. So there could be some dead air here. I just you. think he's really. Um, <laughs> we'll wait. We'll wait we'll you out. This one, Ken. Don't you worry about us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, th- I think fair play to him. You know, I think a lot of people maybe. Also, we, we are talking about how good David Luiz do- is, though. Yeah. I just, I just think he's. I've always liked him. I thought he's had a nice smile. You know, he seems like a good, a good guy, a good-hearted guy. Yeah, well, I, th- I don't know if anyone ever disputed that. Kept his head well during the World Cup as well. You know. Well. You know, some, some when the heat when the heat was turned on, David Luiz really managed to keep his composure. Heat was on in Fortaleza against Mexico. Clean sheet. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the defining game of Brazil's 2014. Uh, there were a, lot, there were a few campaign, games. Right. There were a few games. You know what I mean? There were a few games. But um, uh, Maurizio Pochettino, we'll we'll talk to John about this. He's he's uh, kind of showing that he's not to be messed with um, by. Sort of Tony, Tony Sopranoing um, his most expensive signing. <laughs> his most expensive <laughs> signing back to the uh, uh, Musa Sissoko sleeps with the fishes at the moment. I don't, you can hear you can hear muffled uh, pounding from the car park. <laughs> <laughs> muffled shouts. Something in your boot there. Uh, no, the, Pochettino's car oh, oh. is just rocking on the uh, suspension. <laughs> Something seems to, be. and Pochettino's like, what well, you know, what muffled pounding. You know, what are you talking about? Um, Sissoko apparently hasn't been training and performing to the standards that Pochettino expects, so a message there being sent to the other players as he's left out of the squad. At home was, was Pochettino's question on his whereabouts. He said, I think he's at home. So I Definitely guess. Definitely not in the beautiful car. Must have to, to uh, fact check, but we will talk to John about that uh, game. Um, we will talk. Oh, uh, Good performance, really great performance, actually, by Alexis Sanchez. Alexis Sanchez, I just hope this isn't all leading up to a horrific hamstring injury. Because, again, you know, yesterday, uh, at the start of the game, he scores a goal. At the end of the game, he scores a goal. He's like this irrepressible, energetic source. And yet he's been crisscrossing the globe. Um, every time he plays for Chile, Arsene Wenger, you know, needs to go to bed. He, he literally needs to go to bed early. He can't, he can't handle the stress of... Of Sanchez playing a game, although he can't handle the stress of leaving Sanchez out for his own team, so mm-hmm. it's a difficult one for him. Still going well at the moment, playing really well. Did you see also there was Jack Wilshire sitting in the stand with Danny Welbeck? Jack <laughs> Wilshire's a Bournemouth player, as well, by <laughs> yeah. the way, laughing at the goal. I mean, Welbeck looked like he was maybe trying to make him laugh. Oh, Welbeck was in his ear, giving it loads, mm. and Wilshire had his head in his hands. The yeah. part I saw. Maybe eventually Wilshire had to... Well, Wilshire, Wilshire had his head down and his baseball cap pulled down over his face, <clears throat> conscious of the fact that the camera might be pointing in his direction to see what his reaction would be. So maybe Welbeck wasn't necessarily getting in his face 
in the sense that, oh, look, you're born a baby, you've conceded a goal. It was more, the cameras might end up being on us here and it's going to be really awkward for you. You're so, pretty happy about that track, yeah. aren't you? You're an Arsenal man. Still an Arsenal supporter. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, he, uh, I don't know if that's a breach of decorum or whatever, and I suppose his heart remains at Arsenal. Uh, they said recently they're going to give him a new contract, which I suppose is, is as much about protecting his value as, as anything else. Uh, Liverpool also kind of dug it out on Saturday. Um, a few weird things happened in this game. The goalkeeper, Carrius, put the ball out for a, a corner from a goal kick, which I've literally never seen before. He, he was taking a goal kick from the cor- left corner of his six-yard box, tried to play it to the right back, and managed to side-foot it out of play on the far side. So that wasn't right. I mean, it was, it was kind of right. Like, not for a throw, for a corner. I mean, it was quite something to see. See, it's hard for us to, to make up our mind about you Carius taught the cup because you've had so little to do since we bought you that all you've really done is pick the ball out of the net a couple of times and, and kick the ball up the field a few times but that doesn't help <laughs> you know but I suppose it's all about try, it's all about concentration uh, concentration which is something Jurgen Klopp demands from the crowd as well as the players he was screaming at the crowd at one point because the crowd had started to do this typical thing that a home team that expects to win does after an hour when nothing is happening and start going, oh, you know, what are you doing? What's going on here? Every time they misplace the pass, the crowd starts to get in their back. So Klopp then turns around and starts screaming at the crowd. Um, he, he screams at the crowd the way he does when, like, Nathaniel Klein, like he screams at Klein when Klein tries to pass the ball up the line and passes it out of play. He uh, gave the crowd both barrels. And remarkably, this resulted in a dramatic upswing in performance from the crowd mm. they uh, they really responded to this being called out and shamed by their own manager which is the kind of thing that only a manager who's doing quite well at the moment can really get away with I wonder how, how you know yeah you can't I wonder how, how, well how the crowd would react if things are going that well wouldn't but, recommend Moyes does it Sunderland <laughs> for instance but maybe that's what he needed to do well you said Sunderland I was thinking again of of Manchester United. Maybe if Moyes had turned around to the Stretford end, <laughs> you're not all that, giving him the big... Uh. You got a big <laughs> pair of balls on you, boys, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> there was an injury to Philippe Coutinho, which looked like he might have broken his ankle, but they're still, I'm still haven't seen the results of the scan. They were going to scan it today, and they apparently don't think there is a fracture, so we'll, uh, we'll hear more about that. That's it for Kennedy's report on sport. The training pitch is all stress. Somebody's got to somebody's got to hold a hand up and say it's like training on a car park. No, 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 no regrets about it. You know, as soon as you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. Who, John Delaney? He could have phoned me. Of course, he could have. Try my hotel room. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. As an ex-player and as an Irishman, and I mean an Irishman, uh, born and reared here, then I, I thought that was entitled to give my opinion. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. Why would you turn it off? I see you. Put on silence. You just gonna let it ring? Alright, it's good manners. Play a video that was my team, I'd go into the dressing room and I wouldn't even mention that ball. I'd just say, why didn't someone put their head in it? France would definitely take it and Ireland never grabbed it. Usual. Usual stuff. 
afraid of that next step. Mentally not strong enough. But they can complain all they want, and all these players, they can complain all they want. It's not going to change. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. Barcelona put in a shocker of a performance in the Liga yesterday ahead of next week's Clásico. Sid Lowe is on the line to talk about this. Sid, I suppose the obvious question is, why can Barcelona never win at Real Sociedad? <laughs> well, I think one of the one of the answers to that is for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and and the reason I, I say this time is, this is a run as, you know, as you say, why can they never win there? It goes back eight games, seven games in the league, plus a couple of away games. Um, they drew last night, but they were fortunate to draw, in truth. I and mean, even the manager said after the game that, that this match feels like a miracle. Um, and I, the reason I say there's, there's different answers is because if you look back over all of those games, there are, the explanations shift year by year. Um, I think, in, in a way, it's been partly a quirk of the fixture list. Uh, if you look at certainly the ones before this year, it's been in the build-up to... Um, to games which are more important or coming out of games which are more important. There's been rotations, of course. Very famously, a couple of years ago, this was the game that Leo Messi was left out of and within three days the sporting director had gone. It seemed like the manager was on his way out uh, and, and it was the beginning of a crisis which actually ended with Barcelona winning the treble. This year is different, though. And this year is different because Barcelona played with their strongest possible side. Admittedly, they've got a couple of injuries and the absence of Iniesta is important. Um, and they were playing, I think, against the best Real Sociedad of all of these years. And so while the part of the answer has to be Real Sociedad, I think in previous years it hasn't always been. This time it was. And I know the focus will all be on Barcelona and there's an awful lot wrong with them. But this was them playing against a side that's genuinely very good as well. And, and Real Sociedad last night completely took them apart. And had they won, which they should have done, they'd have been, they'd have been level on points with Barcelona. And they've been the standout revelation of the season in Spain this year. Uh, Luis Enrique said, this is the first time I've seen a team walk all over since I became coach, but it's excessive to say the league is lost after week 13, uh, which means I guess there must be quite a lot of people saying Barcelona have already blown it. Yeah, because this is a game that they came into. I, I mean, partly this is, I think there's the risk, isn't there? There's always this kind of projection of what will happen. So it's not just that Barcelona go into this, and I admit I'm guilty of this as well. It's not just that Barcelona go into the game against Real Sociedad. Everybody knows they go into it. They're seven points behind because Real Madrid have won on the Saturday, and, and everyone says, and this is the place they don't win. Oh, and by the way, next weekend, it's Real Madrid. So you start doing the maths and think, they could find themselves 10 points behind here. And if it's 10 points behind, then, then you know, all right, it's too early to say this for absolutely definitively, but it feels very much like it's over. So then you get a situation in which, okay, they don't lose, so it's six points now, not seven, but the first part of that equation has, has happened. Um, and the way they're playing makes people think that this isn't a situation in which, which you look at the results and think, mm, this is partly chance. It's not, you know, it's not as bad as it appears, and, and the gap can be overhauled. But the way that Barcelona are playing, I think, means that people are pessimistic about the possibility of overhauling a gap should it get even bigger. Um, I mean, if a Clasco was a draw, even six points would seem like a lot at this stage. But if it was to go to nine, and of course, Madrid would have a head-to-head difference um, advantage over them as well if they if they won the Clasco. It'd effectively be four games worth of of, of adverse results that they would need Real Madrid to have with them winning everything to win the league. And I, I think it's a combination of the the, the maths. And, and the sensation, and the, and the sensation is that Barcelona just are not playing right at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we we were talking about them on Thursday because we they they showed the Celtic Barcelona game on TV here um, during the week, and we were saying that they looked a bit kind of sluggish and not not too sharp in that game, even though they won. And I was kind of surprised watching it 
to think to myself that one of the problems with this team, the way it's playing at the moment, is Luis Suarez, a player who I thought, mm. you know, he, he's kind of constantly an electric presence on the field. He gives the team a lot of energy. He he really wasn't doing that. He looked quite leaden. I thought. I mean, it has has Suarez's form become an issue? Are you are you are you seeing a slightly sluggish version of Suarez yourself? Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think a lot of people have, have picked up on that this year. And I think in a way there's there's, there's a kind of um, there's, a, there's something a little bit skewed in the view of Suarez. I think a lot of people have picked up on the fact that he's missed quite a lot of chances this year. But the truth is, if you look back over Suarez's career, he's always missed quite a lot of chances. Um, he tends to miss the slightly easier ones and score the really difficult ones. Um, I think the more significant thing is, is uh, what you're pointing out, the fact that he doesn't look quite as energetic. He doesn't look quite as aggressive. It feels like there's a, there's a little bit missing in terms of the way he's playing rather than in terms of whether or not he's putting the ball in the net. Um, and there was a very interesting comment from, from Carlos Vela last night, the Real Sociedad um, striker, who said after the game, we knew that we had a slight advantage in that they have, they have eight players who defend and three who, who, who defend less, obviously the three being the front three. Now, up to a point, that's natural. This is the front three. And, and certainly with Messi, it's natural. We know that Messi can sometimes look like he's amping about the pitch, where in, in a way what he's doing is kind of taking it all in and, and working out the best. It's almost as if Messi has a kind of reconnaissance mission when he's not on the ball. But for, for that comment to be made about all three of the front three, for it to include Suarez is, I think, really, really significant. Because while it's true that that you know, forwards by definition defend a little bit less. But Barcelona's model in theory is based upon high pressure on on those three players, or at least two of those three players, pushing um, the opposition defence, making sure they haven't got an exit with the ball, making sure they win the ball high up the pitch. And in particular, that was what Suarez was doing. And I, I think you're right. I think, for me, that's the biggest difference between the Suarez of this season and the Suarez of the two previous seasons, at least so far. It's not that he's not taking all of his chances. For me, it's that, it's that he doesn't seem to be imposing himself on people as much as he was and, and physically he, he doesn't look quite as good he looks a little bit leaden that said I think there's something about Suarez's running style that he always kind of looks a little bit clunky doesn't he he's always been quite a big looking forward and, 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 and someone who doesn't look uh, particularly athletic but this year I think he, he, he lacks that, that, that touch of aggression as well yeah I mean you can tell the difference when, when he's trying really hard and when he's kind of wandering around a little bit I mean it's it's obvious just in his in sort of behaviour in the field. But that that idea of, oh, there's, there's three guys who don't really defend, that's death for a team. I mean, when you see, uh, the, you know, Absolutely. Suarez, Messi and Neymar seem to have this, this great um, friendship. You know, they're always, they're always hanging out with each other. Whenever you see them sort of training, it seems to be those three having a laugh. I, I mean, have Barcelona developed a two-tier team now, like those three and, and everyone else? Well, I think there is a risk of that, and and I think you know maybe one of the best examples of that risk is look at look at what happened this weekend in other games. You've got Sandro who left Barcelona in the summer, scores a brilliant goal for Malaga. You've got Monier who scores this goal for Valencia. Barcelona in the summer spent thirty million euros on bringing Paco Alcácer to be their other striker because the feeling was well, you know, the backup strikers are just just no guarantee. They couldn't get Gamero in because Kevin Gamero said, "Well, why would I go to Barcelona when I'm just not going to play?" You look at the success of Monier and Sandro, and I know this is easy. And I know this is opportunistic after the weekend that, that we've had. Um, and I know it's not as simple as this, but there's a reason why Sandro Munir perhaps didn't, didn't play well, was maybe because there was this sense that, well, no, what, what happens? I'm just not going to play. And if you remove that sense of meritocracy or that sense of 
opportunity, then of course it ends up, I think, filtering through. And this is one of the things that happened very, very clearly with Real Madrid's Galactico project. And this is slightly different because I don't think it's institutionalized in quite the same way as, as, as the Galactico model was. It, it's, it's about the football. And of course, being realistic, none of us would ever play anyone ahead of those front three. Yeah. Um, but there, I think there is that sense of it's become a bit too much about them. And what that's done, certainly this is one of the, the key arguments or debates in, in Catalonia. I think what that's done is it's it shifted the balance of a Barcelona team that was identified by its midfield and identified by control and technique and a style of play, shifted it to the guy who, the guys, the three guys who finished the game off. And, and so, and I think what that's done is it, it's almost created a, an identity crisis at Barcelona and, and a shift in ideas. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily problematic in itself if you can handle that right. But, but one of the things that's really striking watching Barcelona this year is how they completely lost control in midfield, yeah. which was the area in which this was the team that you know this was a team that you, you couldn't get a better midfield than Barcelona. And you look around La Liga now and you think, well. Are they the best midfield anymore? And the answer might not be might not be yes anymore. Well, this is this is a really interesting area. I mean, they, okay, so they had forty seven percent possession last night, which for Barcelona is a you know that, that just doesn't happen to us. So it was the first time that it happened this season in a league match, I think. But a player who's come in for a lot of criticism recently is Sergio Busquets, who had this kind of air of serene mastery as he kind of glided around the field and just always seemed to have everything under control. And now he just looks panicked. Now I wonder if. I wonder if um, the responsibility for kind of redressing the balance in this team actually falls on Busquets a bit because, uh, you know, if you put yourself in Luis Enrique's position, you've got, this, you've got this front three who are, you know, arguably the three best players in the world. I mean, they're incredible footballers. It's very difficult for a manager to come in and to, to say, to, to take them on in any sense. But I wonder if a player like Busquets, who's been there for a lot of these great Barcelona years has a responsibility to say, guys, like, this is not the way that we play here. You, you have to give me more help. I, you're beginning to make me look bad, and I'm not going to take this. I'd love to be there for that conversation. Well, you know, you know because Busquets, Busquets has, a, has a real stake in this, and Busquets speaks from a... His, his, authority, his, yeah. yeah, I mean, his, his, he's got credibility. I mean, he has to... I, I, assume, I assume he has credibility. If he doesn't have credibility with these guys, then the team truly is lost. But, you know, to say, look... I can't do this by myself. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking like an idiot now because of the way that it's kind of me. I'm trying to stop all these bullets at the same time and it can't be done. I mean, this is a team that strikes me that they need to get together and figure out exactly what it is they're supposed to be doing all over again. Mm. Well, Busquets, I mean, first of all, in footballing terms, Busquets hasn't played particularly well this year. But I think there was something that was, that was interesting last night, which has been repeated in other games as well. Busquets is picking up the ball and where he used to have those lines of passing open to him, one or two on each side and quite close. Now he's looking up and that line of passing is is so much further away. Um, And it's much, much harder for him to reach players than than it once was. So I think think that's significant. I think the other thing that that I think is significant, and this this takes us back to Xavi Hernandez. For example, that, that... discourse that you're talking about, you know, the player that says, right, this is not what we do. Xavi Hernandez would have done that. Busquets doesn't. Um, and, and perhaps you're right, perhaps Busquets should, or perhaps the, the manager needs to try and find a, more of a hybrid. And at the moment it feels like it was a hybrid, and Barcelona had more variety to them. When they won that treble, it felt like they'd, they'd given it a little twist. They'd, they'd, they'd allow themselves to go a little bit more direct when it suited them, but still they were largely controlling games. And um, 
And I feel like that maybe maybe now the balance has shifted all, that little bit too far the other way. And the Busquets can have that conversation, but it's not na- it's not really in his identity. And we talked about this loads of times about the idea of Chavin Andes as, as an ideologue, as a leader in a kind of an emotional or, or an ideological leader of Arsenal. And while Busquets represents that football, he's not really that personality. He's not that leader in the same way. So so while I think that. That is something that would that would perhaps be beneficial to Barcelona. I don't see Busquets exercising that role. Now, the other player that we've not really talked about, because he's not there, and I think that's a key, key factor in all this, is Iniesta. Iniesta, who understands the way that Barcelona have traditionally played better than anyone else, who gives Busquets those outlet balls, who has that level of um, leadership in terms of, maybe not necessarily in terms of imposing himself, but leadership in terms of what he symbolises, what he represents. Um, I think his return would be really significant. I also thought, thought there was something interesting last night, which was that Barcelona improved. I mean, they, they still weren't great, and Ralph Sosa was still the best side, but I thought they improved markedly last night when Dennis Suarez came on. I wouldn't claim they suddenly became brilliant, but they started to get hold of the ball. And I think what that maybe suggests is that it's about types of midfielders as well as just the identity, you know, just the, the names of midfielders. And Suarez, I felt, gave them the opportunity to play at a shorter ball, to keep the ball better, to support Busquets, to be closer to him. And Suarez, of course, is someone who's, who's been through the, the system of Barcelona, understands and, and embraces the idea of positional play and, and, and playing supposedly the Barcelona, Barcelona way. And I think there's something in that. There's something in that sense that, that maybe this is a midfield that doesn't entirely get it until it has all of its pieces there. And, and, and it, it could be that it's as simple as that. But the whole thing goes together. So it's not just that the midfield gets the ball, looks up, and the front three are a long way away, so then they lose possession. The midfield, even if it holds possession for just a little bit, that then gives time for the front three to move into position to come and receive, take the ball off. And the other thing, of course, is that op- opponents, I think, are doing different things to Barcelona than they used to. The opponents are starting to pressure Barcelona. Now, it used to be that you pressure Barcelona, you run the risk of them bringing the ball out very neatly, and then suddenly the pitch opens up for them. So then you kind of don't dare to keep doing it. But because it's working for teams more often now, I think because they've been able to push the, the defence a bit further back, I think the absence of Daniel Alves genuinely makes a difference in this, even though Sergio Roberto has played well. I think that's frightening Barcelona. I think they're having a little bit less nerve to bring the ball out than, than perhaps they once would have done. Last night, Luis Enrique was screaming at them to get it long. But, of course, if you play long, however good the front three are, if the ball goes up in the air, the chances are it's coming back again. The chances are they're not going to win it. So you haven't necessarily got the player to, the player to play towards if you play like that. And it feels like there's maybe not absolutely everything wrong, but it does feel like a slight crisis of identity, I think, at Barcelona at the moment. Just a quick one on Real. Sid, uh, Zidane's record now after 30 league matches, 82 points, just two defeats, which is pretty impressive, even if you are coaching Real Madrid. It's better than... Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, Luis Enrique, Manuel Pellegrini, these kind of managers who've managed the big clubs there. Has, aside from results, has the nature of his influence become more evident over that time? It, it's curious. Uh, Madrid are aside, it still feels like they defy analysis up to a point because this is going to sound ridiculous. 31 games, it's, it's a fantastic record. It's clear that Zidane has, has connected with the players yeah, in a way that that Rafa Benitez didn't. It's clear that it would be hugely unfair to talk about Zidane purely as a guy who the group very well, that understands the mechanisms and the power bases and the, and the politics and, and, and relates them much better. It would be unfair to suggest that. And yet when you look at it in terms of the way they've played, it still feels, apart from the game at, at the Calvary, where, where obviously they got it very, very right, and I think tactically Zidane read that very well, it still feels like you, you look at Madrid and you, 
you, you're sort of not quite sure still. There, there haven't been very many particularly impressive performances in that run. They have brilliant players. I think the structure, the basic structure is there, although it's shit. And this is noticeable, for example, that Zidane has talked about the front three being untouchable. Bale, Benzema, Ronaldo, they will always start when they're fit because they're the best, which, of course, is, is true and a bit like the front three with, with Barcelona. And yet every time one of them's missing, it's not that he... It's not that he puts a player in their place, it's that he shifts the formation. So it feels like maybe there isn't a, a, a huge commitment, at least, to a tactical idea, which ne- isn't necessarily a problem. Maybe adaptability is a good thing. Um, but you still look at Madrid and think, in footballing terms at least, it's hard to fully see what it is they're, they're, they're trying to do, what their, what their model is. And Zidane doesn't help us with this, and, and this actually may well be deliberate, it may well be his choice. Every time he talks after the game, he talks about intensity and the desire and the work rate and so on. He never really talks about football. So earlier in the season when they were dropping points, he kept saying, well, the problem was is we weren't intense enough. And you'd be watching it and you think, that's not the problem. The problem is you don't play any football. And yet, of course, even when they come through it, so after the, after the Calderon, when he had the opportunity, I think, to to say, look what we did tactically, look at, you know, look what, look what I did, because he got it so right. Even on that occasion, he didn't take the opportunity to say, well, you know, we had an extra man to the field, we kept control of the ball. He wouldn't talk in tactical terms. Now, to say that might be entirely deliberate, but I think it adds to that sense when you watch Real Madrid that in terms of an idea, he's not entirely sure what it is. <laughs> All right, maybe we'll get a better idea next Saturday. Sid, I think the dog is in need of a hug there, so we'll let you go. Thanks a million. Cheerio. That's pretty interesting that Zidane, given the footballer that he was, how expressive he was as a player and the way that he clearly thought about the game on the pitch, gives so little away, is now managing possibly the biggest club in the world, is doing really well, is winning a lot, but isn't communicating any sort of philosophy of football. Mm. I thought he might be a a hidden Johan Cruyff type figure who is ready to sort of write a treatise on how football should be played but apparently not or at least maybe he just want to give it away maybe he does have mm. a very clear philosophy but he just what's the point in talking to these journalists about it because yeah. it's just going to get skewed and skewered perhaps he was the same as a player in terms of his attitude to speaking to the media he never said anything interesting you know um, so he's just dealing that again now it could be as he said that he's keeping the cards close to his chest he only shares those golden droplets of insight with uh, with those closest to him and those to whom it can really make a difference. Or it could just be that he's a boring corporate drone. <laughs> you know, with, he doesn't really have much to say. I mean, most of the time, especially with these, these Spanish managers, have to do so many press conferences. They're exposed to it so much that they do begin to act the way that they really are after a while because it's too draining to, to keep up the facade. You know what I mean? You, they begin to reveal their personality. So you... So, I mean, Mourinho, well, maybe Mourinho really put a lot of invention into the character. Uh, Guardiola was, was, you know, kind of intense. Um, Luis Enrique is quite disagreeable, Mm. frankly. You know, he's he's a kind of a pugnacious type of character. Um, You know, uh, Diego Simeone is is a... is a great talker. Although, again, maybe he talks a lot in terms of generalities, you know, passion and so on. But, you know, he, he says it in such a way that you can, you like... Feel the passion. Yeah, I kind of get why they why they look up to this guy, you know. With Zidane, you don't get that. He's just kind of, mm, yes, well, you know, here we are, the president is a great man, and you know, Real Madrid's the best club in the world, of course, so... 
Everyone's like, okay, well, we don't have any more questions. Well, Maurizio Pochettino said something interesting after the weekend and the defeat at Chelsea about his £30 million signing, Musa Sissoko. We mentioned this uh, earlier on. You sign a player and then you expect something and you don't find what you expected. Sissoko needs to work hard and to show in future that he deserves to be on the team. He obviously hasn't been playing the last couple of games. John Bruin, is this, uh, would you say it's an admirable stance taken by the Tottenham manager? Well, I suppose we've seen Pochettino bare his teeth in a way that we perhaps haven't so publicly, but we do know that this is a guy who is uh, very ruthless behind the scenes. Um, there is There are players that have been cut out of the team altogether, um, certainly last season. Uh, Nabil Bentaleb is a name that springs to mind. Um, and uh, I, I suppose <clears throat> the Sissoko that uh, Tottenham are seeing at the moment is that who... Uh, Newcastle fans bemoaned so often uh, during his time up at St James's Park. Um, he's one of those players that, in, in big games, um, there's one particularly against Chelsea. I remember him playing really well for Newcastle, where he, he, you, you thought this player is the real deal, and he certainly played very well for France during Euro 2016. But he's not a reliable player, and for someone like Pochettino, whose uh, entire ethic is about the team and working hard. And he seems a bit of a poor fit for Tottenham. So Pochettino's had his say. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a contradiction now as well in what Pochettino was saying after the Chelsea game, which is that, uh, I mean, number one, football is not about money. He says that when people are saying, well, why isn't Sissoko in your squad you pay, after you paid £30 million for him? Uh, but he also says when he's explaining why Tottenham are now you know, well behind a team that they you know, thrashed over the course of last season, um, comparing Tottenham to Chelsea, says, well, we are Tottenham, we are in a different process. Which which basically means, we are Tottenham, we don't have as much money as Chelsea, and therefore, we're behind them in the league. So, there, I mean, there is a contradiction. If, if football isn't about money, then then Chelsea are, are working better than Tottenham this season. Well, <laughs> well football is about money, and managers... Will twist the agenda to suit their own needs, and that's what Pochettino's done. Uh, he won't be the first or last manager to do that. Um, and yes, I mean the, the problem that Pochettino's got, of course, is that his team are now underperforming. They've now surrendered that unbeaten record, and uh, you actually look at Chelsea, and you look at a team who uh, they play a, a different style to Tottenham, but it's the type of achievement that Tottenham should be pushing for. And uh, you've got a team there, Chelsea, who have been absolutely outstanding in recent weeks. Um, so you, you've got, for Pochettino, you've got to put it down to a little bit of him grasping around for excuses. And managerial contradictions, well, you get those in every post-match co- uh, press conference for a manager, I'm afraid. Yeah. Do you think the air is coming out of their tyres, though, in a, in a kind of serious way? Because, I mean, they're obviously, they're obviously out of the Champions League and... You know, I, I I get the feeling they could deal with that quite easily if they were kind of challenging in the Premier League because they kind of got the taste of that last season. And I guess that some of them probably, I guess a lot of the players started the season thinking we're going to be back, we're going to be back up there. Nobody's better than us in this league, and they're already a good bit off the pace now. Not even in the Champions League spots and f- struggling to win matches, and they've won once in their last ten, and. You know, you could watch it, you know, you know, uh, busting Soko down to the reserves already. I don't know if the shock therapy is going to work um, 
you know, I don't know if it's going to jolt them out of this slump. Well, yeah. And, and the thing is, though, um, you just always have to look at last season as their big chance. The big chance that Tottenham had to win that first title since 1961. And th- there must be a certain element of deflation there. Now, there was a point um, a couple of months ago where Tottenham were playing well. And I thought they were a pretty decent sleeper team for the the title because, you know, they were playing with a, a little less expectation than others. They're actually playing pretty much the same team as last season, apart from Sissoko, actually, um, and uh, Wanyama, of course. Um, but um, it's just it's just come off. And, you know, th- this is the biggest test, I suppose, of Pochettino uh, managerial metal so far since he's been in England. Um, the Champions League thing was an utter disaster. And there is going to be a hangover amongst the players because of that. Um, really, really disappointing. I think the Wembley decision was fateful. Um, and their performance in that competition showed, pretty much actually showed up the manager for uh, his shortcomings as well. well t- so if- talk to us about that because, I mean, we were, we'd were we been talking about that and I kind of got the feeling almost that it was a secondary thing for Tottenham. Do you, do you think it was that much of a disaster? Like, were, were they, was it that disappointing uh, to the club. I mean, obviously they, they expected to get through the group, but you know, an inexperienced team at that level was it something that that do you think has has sort of affected their sense of themselves? Well, I, I think any team that goes out of the Champions League in what was a pretty embarrassing fashion is going to you know that's going to have some kind of psychological effect on them. Um, I think you're right to say that there was that sense that the Champions League didn't seem so important to them specifically. That rather strange team selection that uh, Maurizio Pochettino uh, went for in Monaco. Dropped a few players, um, messed around with his formula a little bit, and it didn't pay off for him. And that seems to suggest that the Chelsea game was important for him. It was, you know, it was in paramount importance. That was, his, that was Tottenham's chance to get back in, I suppose, the title race. Um, now, the problem is that, of course, Chelsea uh, are past master since 1990 at beating Tottenham at, at Stamford Bridge. Um, and you could say, actually, that Tottenham's plan worked for most of the first half. But Antonio Conte is a very, very canny manager. And Chelsea are riding high at the moment. And there's a team there. They're absolutely they're so resourceful at the moment. And uh, they, they, of course, don't have the Champions League to distract them. So they didn't have any disappointment midweek to, to cope with. And, you know, eventually their, I suppose, greater morale carried the day. Yeah, I mean, you have to say that Chelsea have obviously got a couple of very good uh, players they didn't have last season in David Luiz and N'Golo Kante. Um, but what's almost more important, I think, is the salvage job that Kante seems to have done on some of... The guys who didn't play well last season. I'm thinking here of Pedro, uh, Eden Hazard, uh, Diego Costa is, is playing a lot better. Um, Victor Moses, I mean, dredged up from the seabed and turned into, I mean, he was the match winner uh, over the weekend, but he's been generally playing very well. I must say, I didn't think that he had it in him, but, but Conte's found it in him. Yes, and that's a trait that you've seen um, with, with Conte throughout his career. I mean, uh, Asamoah at Juventus, sort of, you know, he got a similar tune out of him. Um, thing is, with 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 Moses, always been a talented player, you know, back to going to Palace, but he was a victim, wasn't he, of that 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 very strange uh, operation that they have with reserve players at Chelsea, where they're farmed out and res- 
and loan to other clubs and they, they make their money back on the fees of them. Um, yeah, when he was at Liverpool, he actually didn't do too badly at Liverpool, did he, in that 23-13-14 season? Yeah, he, but, he, was a bit, he was a fairly um, minor minor figure. I mean, I wouldn't say he was, um, you know, an important member of the team. No, no but I, I think he was always someone that, I think that Brendan Rodgers thought he could rely on to, you know, come on and kill off a game and he wouldn't make too many mistakes. But Conte's turned him into a completely different player, different position, of course, the right wing back and... You know, the right wing back has not been a, a position in English football for, you know, since the 1990s, really. But Victor Moses seems absolutely suited to it. Um, and of course, uh, Victor Moses gave an interview uh, to a colleague of mine, actually, at ESPN, and said that Jose Marino had not spoken to him. <laughs> so, um, and I get this feeling that Conte has spoken to him. Mm. And I think what you've got at Chelsea now, um, when a team fails, as Chelsea did last season, and I think fans' instinct is to say, clear them all out, get them all out. They're all troublemakers. Um, there's certainly a lot of that, say, at Manchester United at the moment when Manchester United are failing. But the, I think Conte's great achievement is to turn those players, like Nemanja Matic, um, into a team that are the top of the league, the informed team in the Premier League, and to show that you know it's about team building. It's not about buying and selling players. It's about building that team... Um, putting your own ideas in place. And a few players there that look completely lost to Chelsea are now playing as well as they did two years ago when they were title winners under Jose Mourinho. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost forgot Matic there, who I remember Mourinho singling out for some abuse last season. You know, the guy can't, doesn't know what he's doing. He keeps making mistakes. He's made some very bad mistakes. You know, it was awful. And this is a guy who'd done so well for him the, the previous season. Um was clearly capable of doing much better and is doing so again. But you don't think, I mean, Chelsea are the best team in the league at the moment, um, top of the league. Diego Costa is the top scorer. If you take away penalties, he's he's ahead of um, Sergio Aguero. Um, but you don't think that Chelsea, you don't think the best player, you think the best player in the league currently is elsewhere? Yes, I do, actually. Uh, I was at Arsenal yesterday, saw them play Bournemouth. Um, and I think without Alexis Sanchez... We would have been talking about another draw for Arsenal. Um, Bournemouth, very impressive under Eddie Howe, of course, auditioning, we think, to be the future Arsenal manager. But Arsenal, uh, Arsenal are a team, actually, they're struggling a little bit because I think they miss Santi Cazorla so badly in midfield, the creativity that they lack there. But when you've got Alexis Sanchez, who's almost a one-man attack... You've got a check, you've got hope in a game, and he was absolutely excellent yesterday. Bournemouth really didn't have any answer to him other than essentially kicking him over when when they were given the chance. Um, and you look around those the big players in the, in the Premier League at the moment. Aguero's done fine; he's still scoring goals. I don't think he's quite the player he was two or three years ago. Um, there's no Luis Suarez around these days, of course, and Sanchez is. You know, having been given that centre forwards position, is showing the rest of the Premier League how to be a, a line leading centre forward. And I think Arsenal's place in the top four, which I think they'll finish there just as they always do, that relies on Sanchez. Now, a very good quote yesterday from uh, Arsene Wenger after I think what did he say? Something along the lines. I think he said, uh, "Even when he looks dead, he is still alive," which I thought was great. Because uh, speaking to a couple of people at Arsenal, they were so worried about Sanchez having that injury when he was with Chile. And he's come back, um, maybe looks a little leggy at times, but he produces the goods. And yeah, he's the best player in the Premier League at the moment for me. All right, brilliant stuff. John Bruin, thanks a million. Cheers.
Whose phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Westford Gather Station? No, Tesslag Air Station. Now you're on to Westford Gather Station. No, this is Tesslag Air Station. This is Lebanon. Why is Lebanon apparently voiced by Apple? I've been working hard day and night, and now things have changed. Um, yeah, I was invited to, to purchase some property in Portugal. Well, I didn't ring. I picked up the phone right here. And I picked up the phone because it's right here. Jesus Christ. I want you to walk with me. I actually can't afford even anything that you're I'm just not in the market. Home is waiting. Well, best of luck with it. No, that's fine. Talk to me. All right, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. Are you impressed by Pochettino's candor again? Do you think he's right to stick old uh, Sissoko in the back of the boot and tell the world about it? Well, we we have talked about this a few times, and you know we we talked to Miguel and Jack Pitbrook, who who see a lot of Tottenham, and both of them have kind of said similar things in terms of Pochettino's a very good manager, but he really does demand a lot. Like there's a lot more stick than there is carrot here. You're talking about a couple of shreds of grated carrot. And a really big stick with a nail in it, like you know. And Pochettino is like, look, that, that that's what football is about. It's not, you know, it's about standing up. It's about balls. You know what I mean? It's not about like oh, poor me. It's about balls and who has the bigger balls. It's a you know that's kind of his his attitude. And I and and he hates players who cry and moan. Remember he he dumped he dumped quite a few Tottenham players last season. You know players like Andros Townsend. Andros Townsend had a had a disagreement with the staff, and he was gone. That was it. There was no compromise. There was no holding back. There was no oh well maybe Andros maybe if you apologise. It was just you're gone. And I think that's that's very good right up until the point when it's not mm. when the players start to get together and go Have you seen what this guy's done? You know what I mean? And it's difficult to know when you reach that balance. At some point. Players, as long as the players collectively believe in what's happening, they've got this kind, they're kind of propelled by this fanatical energy. Tottenham definitely had that last season. And I think they've shown a bit of that this season in terms of the, how difficult to beat they are. But I also think there's something a bit sort of frenetic about them. Like they're not, they're not sort of at ease. You know, when you see them, everything is a bit rushed. They're maybe trying too hard to impress this manager who they're afraid of. I think he needs to chill out. He needs to be a mother as well as a father to his players, Kieran. Was mm. that what you uh, well, my my brother was at the Tottenham Bayer Leverkusen match in the Champions League. Yeah. He texted me halfway through. He said, "This is the worst sporting event I've <laughs> ever been at." Right, <laughs> and then an hour later, he texted me to say that Musa Sissoko, Musa Sissoko was gave the worst performance of anything by Addywood that he'd ever seen. <laughs> no, not just football. No, no, it, it went so much farther that's than bad, football. That's a bad old Pochettino wouldn't have liked that. Yeah. He definitely... The he, crowd, <laughs> the crowd around him were not... They were, they were urging Sissoko to... to Try and know. pull the socks up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Ever greater heights I mean, of he, performance. He always was like a... a kind of, he, he struck me as a slightly strange signing for Tottenham. And I guess one of the... He, he's he's obviously got a great physique. I mean, I was very impressed with him in the Euro 2016 final. Well, not necessarily hugely impressed, but he did show yeah, he what he's capable of. On a couple of occasions, he yeah. had a few of these very powerful runs where he seemed to almost knock some guys over on the way. But as a Pochettino player, oh, I don't know, only 
a small percentage of players have that special Pochettino mentality. I think a lot of the others quail beneath the lash of Pochettino and Sissoko is definitely one of those. I hope you enjoyed the show. We have another Irish Times Second Games podcast coming out today, Monday afternoon, during which we will dissect Ireland's win against Australia and Katie Taylor's win on her professional debut. I am working hard, assiduously, on this week's Planet Earth reference as we speak. So all will be revealed, Murph, in their second podcast today. Let's let's hold our fire on that one. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Ken. Thanks. Thanks a million for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Mourinho, the man who stole the show. You're the special one, and you're dynamo. Whoa, whoa. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.